0: Heather and I believe that no one and no situation is ever too far gone. Hello everyone, welcome back to the second podcast in this series, Never Too Far Gone. I'm Heather Chitrangolo. I'm so glad you are with me, uh, whether this is your first time or whether you've come back for a second round. Uh, What I thought I would do between now and 2024 is base these sessions on an introduction to what systemic renewal actually is. I'm only just getting to the point of beginning to launch this concept, a methodology for rebuilding broken systems, which I call systemic renewal. And a lot of people have been saying to me, stop being so mysterious about it, you know, just tell us what it is, just... So uh, with that introduction in mind, uh, what I want to do is today just introduce what systemic renewal is, introduce the basic flow of uh, four methods that it consists of, and start to illustrate with some examples uh, as you reflect on your own practice, uh, how renewing systems that are broken works. Uh, So here we go. The title of this podcast is going to be Software Change Isn't Soft. And if there's one thing that I would really love for you to take home today, it's this message that changing the software as opposed to the hardware of an organization or a system or, for that matter, an individual. Working on the mindsets, the goals, the collective beliefs, that we have about what's true, what's valuable, and what's worthy. That work isn't fluffy, it isn't lightweight, it isn't a waste of time. It's when it's done well, it is very practical, it is very linked to how we also lead change at the hardware level or at the kind of practical, physical, structural level of an organization or a system, and it's hard because it's gutsy and it takes courage and it's not for the faint hearted. So changing software isn't soft, it's sophisticated, it is measurable, it is uh, something that can be quantified and then achieved and demonstrated. It's very evidence-based and it's very uh, evidence-driven. So a lot of uh, change management and systems change work that we tend to do uh, in formal, intentional or unintentional ways is so often focused on the hardware of a system. You know, how do we apply levers for change around things like policy, communication flows, funding, infrastructure, staffing, all of those kind of obvious mechanisms. And even though we are living at a time right now where there's this increased Attention that's starting to be given to the concept of changing mindsets and an acknowledgement that we can't change structure and not change mindsets. Even though that dialogue is kind of reaching our our collective consciousness, uh, I don't know that we've really become excellent at it. And this work of changing the mindset or the paradigm that sits underneath the structures of a system. This is my fascination, this is where I like to play and really what I have been working on for many years is methodologies that can be used and practiced in tangible ways to assist that process to happen. So often the work that we see happen around changing mindsets or changing thinking we experience to be very fluffy, very lightweight very um, theoretical, and not very practical, perhaps even very platitudinous. And I want to start by telling you why I think that is. So um, there can be one of three reasons. The first reason uh, that I want to set out is simply that not every system change necessarily needs a mindset change. So that's just important to kind of note up front. So one of the first reasons why talking about mindset change might feel kind of airy-fairy, if you like, uh, or even a bit pointless, is that in some situations, some of the challenges we face in life or some of the changes that we want to bring about organisationally, they don't really require a deep mindset change. So a simple example I thought of before was when I first bought a rice cooker and I, I realized that if I used this machine that cooked the rice for me, that I didn't have to keep stirring the rice while I was cooking the stir fry. And I didn't have to keep monitoring it to make sure it didn't become overcooked or gluggy or, or, or burn at the bottom of the pan, which was often my pattern. I discovered this amazing machine, which you can now buy for $12 uh, from a supermarket which if you measure the water and the, and the rice out in the right measurements and put it all together and switch it on, it just takes care of that for me. And it cooks the rice for me to the perfect balance. And I don't have to think about it or worry about it while I'm cooking a stir fry. So that was a system change that I introduced into the way that I cook and the facilities that I have in my kitchen that did not require any kind of mindset shift from me whatsoever, Um, all it was was introducing a new convenience, a new mechanism into the system that made the process easier, simpler, and saved me some time. So sometimes we can speed things up, make things more productive, make life easier or more comfortable by introducing technologies or systems that we don't need a deep mindset shift to change. So it's just important, I think, to note that up front, that not everything needs this conversation. And to act like it does is already kind of a little discrediting to the process. So changes that do require a a shift in thinking or belief are the kind that I'm calling systemic renewal. Systemic renewal is a methodology for rebuilding broken systems. And there are two words in that sentence that I've just used that are essential to, I think, embracing the idea that mindsets matter and mindset change is hard work and hardware. (laughs) So the first is broken and the second is rebuild. To engage in systemic renewal is first to say the system is broken. The system that I'm working in, the system that I'm leading in, that I'm seeking change for is broken. And secondly, it can be rebuilt. And that's a value statement and it's a, a propositional statement. The system is broken and the system can be rebuilt So not all systems that could do with some change are broken either. What do I mean by broken? It's uh, very simple. There's nothing hugely sophisticated about this. Something is broken when it's not working anymore, when it's not working to achieve what it was originally created or designed to do. Or perhaps it never did work well in the first place. So let's take, for example, a broken marriage a broken marriage happens when what a relationship was first created for, love, um, is establishing and building a home that would be a place of safety, of welcome, of love. If those fundamental goals are at the level of dysfunction, that they're not being achieved at all, we could describe that marriage as broken. Uh, marriages go through trials and tribulations Marriages need a health check here and there. All marriages have struggles. But a broken marriage is one that really isn't fundamentally loving or safe anymore or perhaps never was. So systemic renewal is looking at a system that fundamentally isn't working in the way that it's meant to. Let's go for a macro-level example. We could also say that our economy right now is broken uh, it's not just experiencing a few uh, setbacks, uh, but we, we're we in a, a stage in our history where we're realising that we've built an economy that is in fact destroying the earth and therefore is destructive to human life when the whole purpose of an economy fundamentally is to support and sustain and nourish human Survival and human flourishing. So we could say that our economy right now isn't just damaged, isn't just facing some challenges, isn't just evolving, but is broken. So two reasons why talking about changing mindsets might seem fluffy and pointless. The first is if the system is broken but we're acting like it's not, then the mindset conversation becomes very lightweight and very annoying. The second reason is that if there isn't a fundamental confidence and belief and commitment to the rebuilding process, that broken systems can be not reversed, but rebuilt, reconstructed, and we can build a new story out of the old. If we don't have that commitment, then mindset conversations become stuck and kind of depressing. So let's take the first one. The system is broken, but we're acting like it's not. If dialogue and conversation around uh, changing mindsets becomes sort of sickeningly optimistic, it's hard to sink our teeth into. So sometimes there can be this kind of um, decorative, almost surface-level Band-Aid solution approach going on to things that we know are fundamentally more complex and more broken than that. And um, introducing a kind of um, optimism that doesn't feel grounded in reality, that hasn't first wrestled with the truth, uh, is a kind of approach to mindset shift that is annoying for us all. The second is that if there isn't a commitment to the rebuild, then kind of an approach to talking about mindsets that's very deconstructing, but without a commitment to reconstruction and rebuilding kind of leaves us very disempowered and depressed Uh, so there isn't a feeling that there can be meaningful action or strategy towards change um, because we're just sitting and observing how deeply fractured you know our uh, collective consciousness or psyche actually is and for how many generations it has been and how you know how much our government just doesn't get this and if we sit in that space, uh, it kind of feels like a pointless waste of energy as well. So let's take climate change as an example, give this a little bit of skin. So um, I think we see and hear a lot of dialogue about mindsets at both extreme ends of that spectrum on the issue of climate change. So at one end, we we see all of the kind of um, messaging on social media and messaging in um, the mainstream media that you know if we could all just commit to a mindset shift to really engage with nature and value nature and love the earth more you know plant some trees recycle our waste be mindful of the resources around us and um, you know the world would start to become a better place and that's not untrue um <laughs> Well, I'm not sure if it's true, but it certainly isn't without merit. You know, there's there's value, there's beauty in, in all of that, that kind of discourse. However, um, it kind of trivialises what's a much more broken situation, much deeper issue than something that mindset shifts at that sort of surface level can really heal. At the other end, we could get into um, – a much more depressing um, kind of arresting space where we see people that are passionate about advocating for change and rightly so kind of wanting to expose the level of corruption and compromise within our governments when it comes to policy and investment um the the kind of messaging that the phasing out of fossil fuels is just nearly impossible because of the depth of corruption and corporate greed uh, that's just never going to shift and if we were to really engage in what are the mindsets underneath the history that's led to climate change we would have to look at those things however uh To just kind of stay in that deconstructing space without a process, a method a commitment to the rebuilding work uh, doesn't help us move. So let's take a different example. Um, Just to shift away from that, uh, I was thinking this morning about when I was working with international students uh, here in Melbourne and um, one area that's greatly in need of systems change at the moment is addressing the, the the mental health struggles, the well-being and the suicide rates of international students in Australia. So we see this kind of uh, on one level surface level approach and then on the other side a kind of uh, depressing, degrading, deconstructing approach on this issue as well. So on one level, um, we could kind of see an approach to mindset change that says, well, the system isn't really broken. Um, You know, let's stay optimistic. We've got great programs running and we can put money and resources into really resourcing and equipping and engaging young people in developing their wellbeing literacy. And we can encourage our students to be more active, to play sports, to meet new friends, to, to eat well, to have good sleep patterns. And all of that is brilliant, brilliant, and absolutely necessary. And will it shift the culture around well-being and the outcomes for our students in terms of their well-being? Absolutely. But we also instinctively know that it just isn't enough because it doesn't address the financial pressure our students are under, the family pressures or social pressures that they're often under, um, the isolation they experience, the small apartments they're living in, the language barriers they face and more importantly the systemic racism that they're interfacing with every day as they try to build a future for themselves. So at the other end of the spectrum though we could get really deconstructing and say well our government our universities they're never really going to care enough to do anything about that you know the the depth of colonialism and the way that it's infiltrated all of those systems is so bad that we're not optimistic that any real shift can happen or that the funding or the systemic change that really needs to go into improving those outcomes is ever really, going to be realized. So systemic renewal sits between those two extremes and it's a methodology for rebuilding broken systems. It's about changing both the software and the hardware in the systems but it does so absolutely by favoring and starting with the software. Well, That is we've, we give 75% of our time and energy to working on understanding and addressing mindsets and then associated structures within the hardware. So the framework for systemic renewal assumes two things before we begin. First, the system is broken or has experienced significant brokenness. Um, that doesn't come from a place of criticism. It might, might come from a place of compassion, but it's an acknowledgement of that truth. And second, the system can be rebuilt or what I like to call renewed because no one and nothing is ever too far gone. Now this work is anything but soft. It's anything but fluffy clouds. It's anything but fairy floss. It is gutsy. And when it's consistent and committed, it's effective at creating measurable, desirable outcomes in places that feel impossible. So we work with four methods and four modes. Four methods um, that I've developed come from um, both the study of history and the pedagogies that seem to be effective in shifting collective mindsets, as well as from uh, systems change theories. So these four methods, uh, I'm just going to summarise very briefly. I'm not going to go into the details of all of the pedagogy today uh, with you, but just to give you an overview. Uh, We're always thinking about and working with the software and the hardware at the same time. We do this in four ways. So the first is we get the story. That means we use a range of research methods to really get close to what the actual narratives are that are informing the system and where they developed and how they developed historically. And we do this looking at the individual organizational and whole of system or sector experience simultaneously. So we wanna make sure that we know the story rather than we're assuming it. And we know not only the facts of the story, but also how it's been interpreted and experienced by individuals. So we first get the story. Second, we've what I'm going to call facilitate sad. In other words, we help the system or the people in it to grieve. And we become kind of masters at being able to uh, name difficult truths in a way that is safe, compassionate, appropriate, uh, that has healthy boundaries, but that helps people express and move through the grief associated with change um, without just leaving individuals in the system to do that work themselves if they do, if they even have the resources. So we get the story, we facilitate SAD, but we don't stop there. There's another two steps. So number three is we design the medicine. In other words, we want to design a new narrative or a new narrative that is very strategically targeted at exactly the most problematic narrative within the system and that will counteract and shift it in a very strategic way. And then the fourth part, which is where we start to get into the hardware a little bit more intentionally is we look at how we inject that medicine into all of the right places within the system. We could call this um, leverage points or levers for change. I like to think of it as platforms, but it's about uh, strategically finding how and where and when we can start to inject a renewed narrative into the system in both symbolic and technical and practical ways. So, Just to illustrate this a little bit more, Donella Meadows, who, of course, is one of the most well-known foundational thinkers of um, not systems thinking as a whole, but systems change theory, uh, she identified 12 leverage points for change. And uh, you can read about that in her paper, which was called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System, which was published in 1999. So Donella Meadows identifies these 12 leverage points for change. And I kind of like to group them and think of them in terms of three areas. First, the roots of the system. Second, the kind of tree trunk or branches of the system, if we were to think of it like a tree. And third, the fruit or leaves uh, that are produced by this tree. So at the base of the system, we have the roots, which is the mindset of the system. And Donella Meadows calls these the transcending paradigms, the mindsets and the goals of the system. Then as we move up, we see that there's a structure to this system that is born out of the roots. And the structure is uh, represented by the branches, which we could think of as being the relational and organizational structures that are in place. Uh, that give this system framework. So uh, Donella Meadows identifies these as uh, leverage points: the power to add, evolve, and self-organize; the rules and policies within the system; the information flows; positive feedback groups, negative feedback groups, and flexibility within the system for change. And thirdly, the actual fruit. What does this system produce? And is it producing it in abundance or in scarcity? So Donella Meadows calls these the physical structures, the buffers, and the stocks and flows. So systemic renewal starts at the roots and works at the roots very intentionally, but then it does move up and start to move into strategy that is relational, organisational, and also around productivity and measuring productivity. Okay, so I don't want to give you any more information today about systemic renewal or systems change theory. What I want to do next week is bring in a story to illustrate how this looks in real time. Uh, but for now, let's just take a moment to pause. I want to invite you to reflect on what has come out of this or stood out of this for you so far today and for our reflection time i want to encourage you to think about an area that is most problematic for you at the moment in a system in your life Uh, maybe it's in your home or maybe your workplace or maybe um, the leadership that you exercise at a more macro level what is an area in need of change where there is significant brokenness that that carries the most weight for you at the moment and as you sit with this issue this need and all of the questions that can't be answered in half an hour about how it could begin to rebuild i'm just going to prompt you today with three questions that sit at those three levels of the system, the roots, the branches, and the leaves. So the first question is at the level of mindsets, what platforms are available to you right now to name this problem and its associated mindsets? The second question relates to the level of organisational structure and relational norms. So, what lines of communication or policy making structures can you influence right now to implement a new way of thinking? And the third and last question for today. What small adaptation could be made right now to change the way success is measured in terms of stocks and flows in your system? The Academy of Systemic Renewal is based in Melbourne, and so we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging.